The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. Well, please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. Turn in your scriptures, if you will, to Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. You'll find that on page 939 in your pew Bible. Romans 1, 16 and 17. As, as we've said in previous sermons, this is really the thesis, the purpose statement of the entire epistle of Romans. So we find the whole of Romans compressed into these two verses. This is the word of God. Let us give our attention to it. Verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed for faith, from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray. We come to you now in faith, trusting, Lord God, that you will do for us what is impossible to do for ourselves. Without you, we can do nothing. Give us then uh, the solid food of your word, that, Lord, we might exult in you and in the Savior and in your power and righteousness, uh, which avail much for us. Bless us then as we come to your word. Give me words to speak and give each one of us ears to hear by the hearing of faith. For we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, as we mentioned already today and in previous sermons, this is the the heart of Romans before us in two verses. The gospel of God, which is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe. Matters not where you come from, whether you are Jew or Greek, Jew or Gentile, it remains the power of God unto salvation. Moreover, the gospel is not just the power of God, it reveals the righteousness of God, that God is faithful to all his promises. He is righteous and just both in condemnation, but also, as we see, in salvation. That's the righteousness of God as an attribute of his own character. He is just. But as we get to Romans 1, 16 and 17, we see another kind of righteousness of God. It's a wonderful righteousness of God. It is the righteousness that comes from God and is given to the sinner in the gospel. Not just the attribute of what God is or who God is, but the imputation, the granting, the reckoning of one of God's attributes to the sinner so that the sinner who is saved, the child of God, is no less righteous than Jesus Christ himself. We're talking then about the remarkable doctrine of justification by faith alone, that God in Christ pardons all our sins, counts us righteous in his sight, who like we his praise should sing. Who, like we, 
should worship the true and living God. This is a remarkable passage of Scripture, a remarkable doctrine ministering not just truth to us, but assurance and comfort. We see in verse 16 the gospel, which is the power of God. The gospel is the power of God. But we also see then in verse 17, the gospel which reveals the righteousness of God, that is, the righteousness that comes from God and is granted to the believer in salvation. The gospel, the power of God, the gospel, the righteousness of God. Those are our points this morning. Verse 16 speaks to us of the gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation. Paul says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul comes straight out of the gate saying this, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It's a bold statement, a strong statement, and it immediately makes us question our own commitments, does it not? Are we in any way ashamed of the gospel? Uh, We'll come to that in a moment. Why is Paul saying this? Why does he come straight out of the gate not telling us about the gospel, but telling us rather that he is not ashamed of this gospel? Well, the clue is in the first word of the verse, for. Same as the first word of verse 17. He says, for I am not ashamed. That tells us Paul is building a case verse by verse. This is something then of a conclusion. He's just said this in verse 15. I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. He's providing a reason. What's the significance of his delay? Well, we saw that last week. He's delayed going to Rome because he has work to do elsewhere, not because he is ashamed of the gospel. Rome was filled with learned and so-called wise philosophers. Was Paul fearful? Was the Roman church fearful of attacks from outside of the church? I mean, Paul knew that the gospel was foolishness to the world, didn't he? He wrote those very words. Was he afraid that the message he would preach would sound foolish, that he would look foolish in the eyes of those about him? Paul says, no, I am not ashamed of the gospel. We have here a man who has an absolute assurance and confidence that the message and the persons and the power of the gospel are far supreme to any other message man knows. Paul exhibits a supreme confidence here in the gospel, what? Of God. The gospel of God, as he's called it earlier in the passage. His confidence in God and in Christ and in the Spirit and in the message of the gospel are unshakable. He is speaking to us of a power, wisdom, might, and glory far, far beyond anything the world can muster. And friends, I want to describe that gospel to you today, and I want to tell you this is our gospel the gospel of the God that has saved us by his Son. And I want to say we have no reason to be ashamed of it. 
no reason to be shy or embarrassed of this glorious gospel. Because Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it is the power of God for salvation. Why would you be ashamed of this? Why would you be embarrassed of the power of God for salvation? Now, salvation is a big word. And I suspect we could spend all day defining salvation from different parts of Scripture. William Hendrickson, in his commentary, has a really nice summary of what salvation is. He speaks of six elements of salvation. He says the salvation of the gospel is the rescuing us from the guilt of sin and bringing us into a state of righteousness. Rescuing us from sin, the guilt of sin, and bringing us into a state of righteousness. Salvation is the rescuing us from the pollution of sin and bringing us into a state of holiness. Salvation elsewhere we find in Scripture is the delivery from slavery to sin and the granting of freedom in Christ. Elsewhere we see salvation described as alienation from God. We are rescued from such alienation and brought into a familial relationship with God. Or we see Scripture saying that salvation is the rescuing from the wrath of God and the love and peace of God being shed abroad in our lives. Elsewhere, we see salvation being spoken of as deliverance from everlasting death and being brought into a state of everlasting life. We could go on and on and on. So deep, so great, so wide is our salvation, friends. And this salvation is of the Lord. It's a divine, a unique, a miraculous work. Scripture teaches it is altogether a divine work, and the implications of that must be real in our lives. If it is altogether a divine work, then we may take no credit for it. Humility, not pride. If it is a divine work, it means that that work of salvation is not constrained by human activity or subject to weakness of any kind. Because this salvation is the product of the Almighty the one who exists outside of time, outside of constraint, outside of limitation, the one who possesses all life and blessedness in and of himself. That is to say, his work of salvation is a product of all that, of all of who he is. Now, I ask you, dear friend, today, what other God, what other message can do all that for you, dear Christian? What other leader, what other figure, what other thinker, what other message, what other power, what other influence can deliver you from death to life? We know the answer. It's a rhetorical question. Consider what an enormous privilege it is for each of you here today, dear Christians, to be in the holy 
presence of the true and living God who has delivered you from your sins and brought you into his family, that you should be sat here today and not outside in one of those houses surrounding us. Again, that's not about us. It's the grace and mercy of God. Consider this, friends, that you, dear Christian, in salvation have been liberated from the penalty, the guilt, and the power of your own sins by the mercy of God. That your sins have been washed away in the blood of Christ. The stains of your past, even your present, have been washed away. Today we sit in God's presence, righteous, holy, free, liberated, sons and daughters of the living and true God. Friends, I want to say to you, there is nothing hopeless about the gospel or the Christian life. There is nothing powerless about the gospel or the Christian life. There is nothing weak, nothing to be derided, nothing to be ashamed of in the gospel of God. This is the supreme message of all messages. There's nothing to be ashamed of in the gospel of God. All other messages are measured by the message of the gospel and are found wanting. It is both morally and intellectually far superior to any message you will hear in this life. Do not be ashamed of it. Do not be ashamed of the Savior of the gospel. I ask anyone here this day, if you're without this gospel, if you're without God and his Savior, Jesus Christ, what in the world is keeping you back? I mean, do you not want to be brought into a state of righteousness, holiness, granted freedom, be part of the family of God, enjoy the peace and love of God, live forever in the presence of God? What's holding you back, friend? Trust in Jesus this very day for the forgiveness of your sins. And Paul makes that very clear, that that universal call of the gospel. He says in the text, he's not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. That's to say to everyone, everyone. The gospel is without distinction to all nations, to people of all kinds. It matters not where you're from, how much money you have, what you've done in the past or the present. The gospel is for everyone who believes. It is for all, provided you're willing not to rest on your own strengths upon your own supposed righteousness, but to receive Jesus Christ as he is revealed in Scripture and receive him simply by faith. What it is to be a recipient of the power of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ is the most remarkable gift ever given to human beings. Yes, the gospel, dear friends, is the power of God to salvation. 
But more than that, we see that idea of the power of God further explained by the concept of the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God, verse 17. Uh, You'll notice again that verse 17 begins with the word for. That means Paul is providing another conclusion or another reason for his His proposition, his central proposition is this, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. How then is it the power of God? How is the power of God revealed in this way? He says, for in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Power of God is revealed in the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God demonstrates the power of God in salvation. We'll come back to that right at the end of our message. How does the righteousness of God reveal the power of God? But key to understanding this passage, and frankly the whole of Romans, is understanding this message of the righteousness of God. Verse 17, for in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. What does he mean by righteousness of God? I've already said one of Paul's main concerns in the epistle is to vindicate God, to justify God, to prove him upright and righteous and just in both condemning and in salvation. And we see that kind of argument right throughout the epistle, particularly in chapter 9. He says then in chapter 9, verse 14, what then is there injustice on God's part? If the Jews have been rejected because of their lack of faith, is there injustice on God's part? Now, he will answer that. Paul is very concerned that the Roman church, that we understand God is righteous in salvation. God has not compromised his character in dealing with sin or in casting off those who were historically his people. What does it mean? Well, both answers, how the gospel is the power of God and what the righteousness of God means, is found in understanding that phrase, the righteousness of God. God is personally righteous. It is his attribute. Therefore, he is righteous in all that he does. But Paul is saying something remarkably different or distinct from that. He is not just saying, yes, our God is just, our God is righteous. He is saying that our God gives forth a righteousness in salvation. He is speaking here of the righteousness that comes from God in salvation. He is speaking of the doctrine of justification by faith alone. If you get nothing else out of this sermon, try and remember the doctrine of justification by faith alone. It is central. Calvin called it the hinge of all of salvation. In justification, we are introduced to two acts of God. Remember this two acts of God in justification. The first is this. Sins are forgiven. Sins are forgiven by the blood of Christ. That's why we sing these words, my sins, not in part, but the whole. 
are nailed to the cross, and I bear them no more. Staggering words. Our sins are forgiven in justification. But secondly, there is an imputation or a reckoning or a counting of those same individuals whose sins are forgiven, accounting them righteous. A divine righteousness, the righteousness of God himself, is given to the Christian in and through Christ. That's to say, friends, if you're a Christian here today, you have a record of perfect law-keeping before the throne of God. We are viewed by God as law-keepers. Let it sink in. Staggering. It's what theologians call the great transaction, what Luther called the great exchange. It's what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made Christ who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The great exchange. Our sins to him, his righteousness to us. Luther would say this, that is the mystery which is rich in divine grace to sinners, wherein by a wonderful exchange our sins are no longer ours but Christ's, and the righteousness of Christ not Christ's but ours. He has emptied himself of his righteousness that he might clothe us with it and fill us with it. And he has taken our evils upon himself, that he might deliver us from them, in the same manner as he grieved and suffered in our sins and was confounded, in the same manner we rejoice and glory in his righteousness. We rejoice and we glory in this great exchange. Horatius Bonner would say, upon a life I have not lived. Upon a death I did not die. Another's life, another's death, I stake my whole eternity. That's what we're talking about. Or as another pastor sums up the doctrine of justification, he says this, Pride wants to earn divine acceptance. Humility simply believes it. Isn't that wonderful? Pride wants to earn divine acceptance. Humility simply believes it. Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Humility simply believes it. Use the language of Scripture where talking about sins forgiven and righteousness imputed. 
Paul will say in Colossians 2, verse 13, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Wonderful news. And he will say of righteousness imputed to us, Romans 8, 3, For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Did you hear that? The righteous requirement of the law fulfilled in you, dear Christian. Perfection. Spotlessness. Not a single blot on the copybook. Not a single smear on your record. Not even a little dot to signify in the court of heaven, this one's a sinner. It's as if you never committed sin. Everything promised in the Old Testament foreshadowed the sacrifices, the myriad of sacrifices, the cleansings, all the rites and rituals points to this reality. All the separations from the nations round about the, the holiness laws, the laws demand itself point to this very moment. And here, friends, is God's answer. No false atonement, no sweeping sin under the carpet, no weighing of your good works to see if they outweigh your bad works, no a real atonement, full atonement, can it be? No frail human righteousness either, which is no righteousness, no works or the labors of our hands to be right before God, but real forgiveness real removal of guilt, the penalty, the power of sin, moreover a reckoning or counting divine righteousness to your account, dear Christian. This is remarkable. How is this? Paul will tell us in a few chapters that Jesus Christ is the great representative of his people. Just as we are all in Adam by birth, so that what happened to him also in some way happens to us. We sinned in him, we fell with him, and we've added all our own transgressions on top of that. So positionally, by representative, we fell, and we've behaved according to that fall ever since. So too by Christ's obedience, by his life and by his death, we are forgiven and counted righteous in him. Paul tells us, friends, that that righteousness that comes from God and is granted to every Christian united to Christ, it's not something that some have and some don't. 
This is an absolute truth, a single, unrepeatable act of God for all Christians. Paul says that righteousness is received how? By faith. There is no other mechanism by which the righteousness of God can be known in your life. By faith in the Savior who lived a perfect life and died the perfect sin-atoning death, there is no other mechanism to be right with God. For in the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Friends, this is the question, ultimately, that everyone in this world is yearning to answer. How can I find meaning? How can I find fulfillment? How can I find rest in my soul? How can I be right with God? Even while they're trying to deny God, the real problem is they're thinking, how can I be right with God? How can I put an end to the contradiction of being God's creation, living in God's world, and denying that God? The heart of all man's yearnings to which he turns to hard work, to charity, to entertainment, to blotting out the image of God through drink and drugs, whatever else. Paul says there's only one way, dear friends, only one way to be at ease in this world, to be at ease with God, to be right with God. He says it's revealed from faith for faith, As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. What does he mean, from faith for faith? It's a debated passage. Some suggest that it's saying faith is the beginning of receiving and the end of receiving Christ. We can't disagree with that, even perhaps if it's not saying what the text says. It's true. Faith is the beginning and the end of receiving Christ. Christ. Others suggest that God's righteousness is granted to us through faith for all who believe to faith. In other words, it's saying, I think, the righteous shall live by faith. Friends, hear this. Faith unites to Jesus Christ. True faith, sincere faith, unites to Jesus Christ. When somebody is granted the gift of faith and it's worked in him by the Holy Spirit, he is inseparably bound to the Lord Jesus Christ. Inseparably, with a bond which simply cannot be broken by anything on earth, by Satan or hell itself. It simply can't happen. The Christian is bound to Christ. We speak of union with him an unbreakable, a full, a flourishing, a life-giving union. It binds us to Christ and all his perfections, so that in some way what is true of the Savior becomes true of you, dear Christian. We're united by faith to the Son of Sons. We're united to the righteous one, the atoning one, the holy one of God, so that as God is well pleased with his Son, so is he well pleased with you, dear Christian. 
notwithstanding the fact that your life might look something of a shambles right now. He's well pleased with his spotless children. How does this help us, friends? We've said already, this doctrine of salvation by God, the grace of God, justification, the imputation of righteousness, because it's all of God, ought to make each one of us here today absolutely humble. If it does nothing else to us, surely it should do that. We've not contributed anything to this deal apart from the sin. It's not a great record. Humility. The gospel is the gospel of God, not the gospel of a preacher, not the gospel of your own labors, merits, or hands. It is the gospel of God. We ought to consider that more often. I have been saved, not I saved myself. But secondly, friends, I want to say that this truth ought to provide each one of us with a rock-solid assurance of your salvation. The assurance that your sins past, present, and future have once for all been dealt with in Jesus Christ. He has taken away all our sins, my sins not in part, but the whole, unnailed to the cross. We've been clothed in the righteousness, divine righteousness of God himself in and through Christ. And you see, this is where the righteousness of God demonstrates the power of God. The righteousness of God is perfect and unimpeachable. No charge can be leveled at God regarding his righteousness. That is to say, the righteousness we have is not subject to being charged is not subject to the accusation of breaking the law of God and thus condemnation. No condemnation, now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Yours. Ours. There's the power of God. To save not in part, but to the utmost. Salvation is a done deal for the Christian. There's the power of God. Not a part salvation that we must finish off. He's done it. Salvation is all of the Lord. Christ's death delivers us from sins. And because Christ's righteousness is given to us. Our end is sure. Perhaps Heidelberg Catechism 60 can clarify the matter for us as we close. The question is this, how are you righteous before God? Heidelberg answers this way, only by a true faith in Jesus Christ. That is, though my conscience accuse me that I have grievously sinned against all the commandments of God and kept none of them, and am still inclined to all evil, yet God, without any merit of mine, of mere grace, grants and imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ, as if I never had nor committed any sin. 
as if I had accomplished all the obedience which Christ accomplished for me. If only I accept such benefit with a believing heart. May God grant us all believing hearts. Let's pray.